Hey everyone, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. You know, it's easy to run to God when we struggle and when things are stacked against us, but what about when things go well? Do pride and success ever take over? In this message, we'll look at how Abram responded to a victory and be reminded that everything good comes from God. Here's Myron. Well, hey, welcome everybody. Psyched that you're joining us and with us as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. We're going back to the beginning to unpack all of like who we are, identity, our purpose, who God is. And I don't know about you, but I feel like every week as we study Genesis, like, oh my gosh, that's my life in real life, real time today. It's unbelievable how timeless scripture really is and how applicable it is for our day and age and even your own personal life and what you're navigating. And so I just want to quickly recap as fast as I can to catch you up if you've missed any of the last 13 weeks or so. Um, Some of you might be like, great, I haven't been here in 13 weeks, but I'll catch you up. Um, So page one of the Bible, we see uh, Genesis 1 that God speaks and there's like this flash of light and this big bang, so to speak, that science tries to explain, but they can't really explain. But it's God creating and speaking and things are coming to life and the whole creation account happens. And and then chapter two, we see that it was an incredible plan that God had for us, his prized creation. And then it didn't take long till page three where we blew it. Like we blew it. We, we go against God's design, his commands. Sin enters the world and plagues us and separates us. And there's pain and there's failures and there's hardships and there's shame and there's guilt that even you and I are experiencing today. And it's called sin. And it came into the world and totally blew it up. And we were not living the way that God's plan and his, his design and his intent was. And then after chapter three, chapter four hits. And really we see a bunch of attempts by humanity and mankind to try to fix it on their own. Like, and they're pursuing all the desires of their flesh. And, and, and there's even a restart that happens in there. And one family is saved. And, and we just see this, this desire for mankind to find contentment, to find satisfaction, to find pleasure, to find success through wealth, money, and things. But it's always leaving them empty. And if I'm honest, I read that section and go, that was my life. I was grabbing and trying to satisfy my desires with things of this world. And it left me empty to the point of where I had to finally realize that I was totally not happy and not in relationship with God the way that I should have been. And kind of had this 180 moment where this revelation of me meeting Jesus again and having this renewal. And I read this and go, those people back then were the same people of us today and uh, it's my story through and through all of Genesis up to this point. Maybe you felt the same exact way. And so man can't do it on their own. They're trying and failing. And it's just this valiant effort that they're trying, but they can't do it on their own. And then a guy shows, or then God shows up to a man named Abram and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to do things differently. Like, I, I need you to be the father of faith. I need you to be a man set apart that's going to lead my people, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And there's this promise that we talked about last week where Abram's kind of seeing the fulfillment of this promise, and Abram and Abraham are the same dude. He's going to get a name change here in a little bit. We'll get there uh, in this series. And he shows up to this pagan-worshiping, non-God follower, and says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a leader of my people. I'm going to set you apart to be my chosen people. And he gives, he gives, he gives Abram the command and says, hey, leave your family, leave your place where you're living, go, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you the land that I have, uh, have prepared for you in advance. Don't bring anybody or anything with you. And he's like, okay, but then he brings Lot. And we talked about the destruction of bringing a Lot and holding on to a Lot and, and really disobeying God when he spoke so clearly, but he holds on to Lot and Lot leads him into a lot of trouble. And we've unpacked that in the previous weeks. And then, um, 
we've kind of seen that, you know, he brings Lot out of, I think, kind of like a loyalty or an obligation because it's his nephew. So his brother, Abram's brother, died at a young age and his kid was left kind of fatherless. So I'm sure there was a, a unique, special bond to bringing Lot. And I, and I think it's kind of ironic. That's my story with my sin. I don't know about you. I don't know if you struggle with the same sins over and over again. It's not like I wake up every day and go, you know what, I'm struggling with anger today. Like I don't wake up and go gossip, man, it's just too juicy and I'm struggling with it right now in this three-month season. It's the same thing over and over. I have like this special bond to Lot or the special bond to my sin that the enemy wants to keep trying to tempt me with and, and, and pull me away from God. And maybe that's just me, but I'm sure that's probably you as well. And so there's all this guidance about Lot and don't bring Lot and deal with Lot in your life, whatever that sin is. And Lot leads Abram into a lot of trouble, but God's still blessing Abram and still blessing Lot and they're growing their people following and their possessions and their livestock and their herdsmen. And we saw a couple weeks ago where, or, or, there, where um, there was this strife between um, Lot's uh, herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen and there wasn't enough feeding ground and grazing ground. So Abram came to Lot and said, you know what? We got to separate. Like it'll be better for us to just part ways. And Abram, as the elder, as the, as the one who has the promise from God, he would have had the right to say, I'm choosing this land, you get the leftovers. But he looks at Lot and says, you know what, Lot, you go first. And Lot looks over at Sodom and Gomorrah over the Jordan Valley area, and it's plush, it looks fruitful. And he's like, I'm going to go there. And if it's pleasing to your eye, Abram says, go, I'll go the other way. And they split. And that's kind of where we left it. And then we see the fulfillment of God's promise starting to play out in Abram's life last week. And Lot chose the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. He puts his tent outside the city. Then we see he leaks into the city. We'll see that here today. And then in Genesis 14, you're caught up. If you missed it, you're caught up. Summary. Now we're in Genesis 14, where we're going we're gonna to spend our time here today. So Genesis 14, the whole chapter, if you want to go there, you can in your Bibles. And so when I read the first like 11 verses of, of Genesis 14, I'm like, this is the Old Testament gobbledygook stuff that bores me to death. And I don't understand what the heck I'm even reading. Like there's names and kings and places and I can't pronounce them. And, and sometimes you try to memorize them, especially if you're like a young single guy, like college group or, you know, youth group. And you're like, I'm going to press all the ladies. I got this memorized. I'm going to pronounce it so confidently and impress everybody. But no one's really impressed by it. It doesn't matter. Like there are dead people from the past. Like it's important, but I'm not going to read them all because I can't pronounce them right. I'll make a fool of myself. But I want you to know the first 11 verses is basically this. We see the first war recorded in the Bible, the first battle, the first war. And really what was happening is back in that day, like you didn't have massive empires like that, that the society hadn't evolved in technology and infrastructure. Like, so it was more of these like small villages that had like a point leader, a Lord or a King over their people group. And so in this region, which was the Middle East region, Iraq, Iran area outside of Jerusalem uh, and, you know, Palestine area. Uh, there was these, there was like nine different little city states or villages that had a point leader king. And that's what we're calling these kings of these places. And there's nine of them that are in this alliance. And that was pretty common. You would make alliances with people of neighboring communities because if somebody from the outside tried to come in and overtake you and take your women and take your livestock and take your land, you wanted people to back you up if that ever went down. And so there was one person, one king who kind of came up as a tyrant. His name was Candelorum, I believe. I don't know. I'm going to call him King K because my translation has K as the first letter of his name. But King K was kind of this tyrant. And so there's nine of them. 
And then five of them kind of get fed up with it. And there's probably a lot of immoral behavior and, you know, maybe some really sinful, wicked, evil things that are happening because this is the area, the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know how wicked they have been. And and we're going to see even more as Genesis plays out, some of the horrific things that are happening there. So I can only imagine the craziness and the sin and the evil. And five of the kings that are in this alliance, in this region say, we're done. We're done. We're out. We've been under your reign for 12 years in the 13th year. We're rebelling. We got a sub-alliance and there's this battle. The first war breaks out. Four kings against five kings. The fives are, the five are trying to pull out of this alliance that they had with these other four. And the first war breaks out and we read about it and you can go read about it and try to pronounce those names. Good luck for you. But that's what's happening. And why is it important? Why are we even reading about this first war? Well, because in verse 10, we see why this is important that this battle is taking place. So let's pick up in Genesis 14, verse 10. It says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so just know, there, it, the, the part of the five that, that pulled out of the alliance was Sodom, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And so they're on the run. The four are chasing them. They're, they're pillaging their villages. They're taking all their uh, you know, possessions. And everyone who didn't get killed in the tar pits or in the battle are fleeing into the hills. And so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled all their people. Some men fell into the pits. The rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot. Here it is, why we know this is important, and his possession since he was living in, underline, he's living in Sodom. It's confirmed. A couple of chapters ago, he was outside the city and there was some speculation he was probably creeping in. His sin was drawing him farther and farther away from being the man of God he was supposed to be. And now it's confirmed that he was living in Sodom. And when the battle takes place and the four kings are chasing out the five, taking everything that they want, killing people, they, they capture Lot, his family, all his possessions. And that's why it's important. And so I want you to notice in Genesis 13, 12, which we've studied last week, that they split and Lot was motivated by greed and lust and desires of his flesh. And he moved his tent near Sodom and Gomorrah. But now we see he's actually in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then if you want to note, you want to write down uh, Genesis 19, 1, Even after, I'm going to spoil it for you. We're going to see a rescue mission from Abram to go get Lot back. And then like four, three, five chapters later, uh, Genesis 19.1, we see that Lot's going to be sitting at the gate in Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes back even after he just experienced this horrific war and kind of a casualty alongside of the war and the horrific evil that he knows Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are living in. He ends up going back even after he was rescued from it. By his uncle, 19.1 says he's back as a leader now, sitting at the gate, full knowing what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are doing, committing these atrocities and the wickedness of these people. He got pulled back in. It's crazy. So the war, five kings pull away from the four. The nine, they split. There's this revolution. I think of it as like Braveheart like unorganized, crazy warfare, swords and shields. There's immoral behavior and all kinds of crazy tyrant kings and all that. That's what I'm picturing in this battle in the Valley of Siddim between these kings. And in this battle, Lot gets taken, his possessions and his family. And that's the headline. That's what's happening in the Hebrew today. If you read it, wake up and look at the news. That's what's happening. But there's something profound that I think God wants to communicate and why this war and this story and this rescue mission of Abram going after Lot is included. And I want to unpack it for us. And so in verse 13, we pick up that Abram gets news that his uh, nephew Lot 
has been taken. So verse 13, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. I want to pause on this word Hebrew for a minute. It's the first time this word Hebrew is mentioned. And it's, it, it's, it's a, a definition of Abram and his clan. Right, they would become known as the Hebrews. When we talk about the Hebrew people, we talk about Abram's descendants, his nation, the nation of Israel that will form from the line of Abram, that his descendants will number the stars and they're called the nation or the, the Hebrew people. It's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible and it always refers to Abram's descendants or the nation of Israel. And there's actually a book in the Bible in the New Testament that is communicating to the Jews or the lineage of Abram that are still in Jerusalem that haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, there's a, there's a cry out, there's a call from the author of Hebrews to those people informing them of who Jesus is to get them to understand that he is the Messiah. And there's a debate whether or not this, this name means that it's, it's the, he's the son of Eber, which Eber was his father. So Hebrew would just be Eber, Hebrew, son of Eber. Or the, I love that the word Hebrew actually means the one who passes over. The one who passes over. It's like we're getting a picture of the people who pass over. They're sojourners. They're aliens. This is not their home. And it's a picture of even Christ of like, we are not living for this life or for this world. We have a bigger call on our life and a kingdom that's outside of this temporary dwelling that we get to be in. It's incredible. He has a name for himself now. He's created a reputation. He's known now as a group of people or a household or a clan that's a little different. They're set apart. They're not of this world as much as everybody else. They're sojourners or aliens or the ones who are just passing by temporarily. I love that. He's got a name. He's got a reputation. He's starting to live out the promise that God has given him to make him a great nation. And my hope is that you and I have a reputation like Abram with the word Hebrew, to where we are not living in the, in the desires of our flesh, that we're denying ourselves and realizing that we are spiritual beings and having an earthly experience on a temporary, uh, a temporary moment to where this life is not our home. Our home is in heaven with, with, with King Jesus forevermore. And I hope we have that reputation, that we are set apart, that we have made a name for ourselves that honors our Lord and our Savior. And I know it's tough because I'm a human like you, is we put so much stake in our wealth, in our bank account, in our success, in our accolades, what we can provide and what we contribute and what people think of us. We put so much value on that in this life with, with um, approval of man. And I know it's easy in theory to be like, yeah, we're not living for this world, but it's hard to do it day to day. I know that. I struggle with it. I'm in that with you guys. And we put so much identity and who we are, and what we can achieve, what we can provide, and what our reputation is among man. But Abram was making a name for himself. He was showing and demonstrating. He's not perfect. We know that. We've seen that. But he's starting to have a reputation that he's different. He's set apart. He's starting to live out and experience the fruit of God's promise over his life. And I'm sure he has learned a lot over his journey and on his journey. And he's beginning to rewrite his reputation. I want you to know, no matter what you've done, how horrific of things you may have done, that it is not too late for you to rewrite your reputation among men. So they can look at you and go, wow, there is really something different about you. God really does have your life in your heart and you will completely surrender to him. And look at your transformation. It's unbelievable. Your testimony is powerful and you're never too far gone. Look at Abram, look at David, look at some of the heroes of the faith that we look at in scripture. Some of the horrific things that they did and they were never too far gone. And neither are you. He's known as the Hebrew, the one who passes by. 
So what are you known for on your street? What are you known for in your neighborhood or your cul-de-sac or out in your community, in your county? What are you known for on in the workplace and, and with your coworkers or at the ball field or on the sidelines, how you're interacting with referees and other parents? Like, what are you known for in your communities? And what do people associate you? And I hope it is upholding the name of God and the reputation of your Lord Jesus Christ, honoring him with your everyday life, that we are set apart, we are different than the world. He's a Hebrew. And so I want, uh, there's a journal entry or a note you can write down. It's Hebrew means son of Eber or the one who passes by. And I want us to be a Hebrew in the context of we're not living for this world. And people know that. They see that about us. And we carry that kind of identification and our identities in him and the promise that he has for your life. So Abram has his clan. He's got his people. It's growing. It's getting big. He's, he's starting to live out the promise of God that, he's, that was spoken over him. This war breaks out, four versus five kings. And there's this battle that takes place. Lot gets swept up in the middle of it. A guy comes running to him out of breath saying, they took Lot, they took Lot. And Abram has a decision to make. In this moment, you know, he could just say, not my problem. You know, I, I mean, Lot had his chance. And I mean, you know, like I, he made his own decision and he's got to live out the consequences of a decision. Or Abram can be the super cool guy that I think he is. And it's incredible to see what he's about to do. And he's like, hey, you know what? I, and I think one of his motivations is that he feels personally responsible for Lot being in the situation that he's in. Because I disobeyed God, I brought him with me, I should have left the knucklehead back at home, and he got me in a lot of trouble, and now he's getting me into more trouble, because now I gotta feel like I'm obligated to go save my family. And so Abram makes this incredible decision to do the right thing. I think he's learning. I think he's learning to do the right thing. And so he, he uh, saddles up the troops, and he goes on a rescue mission to save Lot. It says this, now Abraham was living near the great tree of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskul and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out to the three, underline this, 318 trained men born, I went born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men and attacked them and he routed them. He's pushing them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. And he recovered all the goods and he brought back his relatives, Lot and his possessions together with all the women and the other people who had fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, this is a great rescue mission. We're like, yeah, we're rallying. This is awesome. Great rescue mission. But hold on, I want us to see something. If Abram, I mean, think about it. Abram has the promise of God. He's God's chosen man. And he knows that God's with him and even says back in uh, Genesis 12, 3, that I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. And I'm gonna curse those who curse you. And if he really leans into that, you know what he, you know what he has the, the right to do or could do? He could just walk into that army camp and play the God card and said, you know what? You can't curse me or you can't hurt me. I got God on my side. That boy's mine. I'm taking him with me. He could have done that. He's the only person that probably could have done that. And then Moses, like, I feel like in my mind, I wanted Abraham or Abram to show up like Moses and strike a staff down and totally just wipe people out. And he probably could have done that, but he didn't. He rallied his 318 trained men. He was strategic. He had a plan. And the 318 men that were born in his household, they weren't his offspring, but they were the people that he acquired and they were born in his household. 308, that's a, that's a pretty substantial army. And they're trained. They got swords and spears and shields. I'm assuming they've, they've, they've sparred each other. They've prepared. And why would Abram 
need to train this many men if he has God on his side where he can just kick back in the lazy boy and say, if it's not God's will, it's not God's will. I ain't got to do nothing, right? No one can touch me. I'm the untouchable child. He could have done that. I mean, he's got God on his side, but he didn't. He's learning to do the right thing. He's learning to be prepared. He's learning that he has a responsibility. He can't just remove it and be lazy and not actually work to honor God and be a blessing to everyone around him. And he's allied with three other dudes. Did you see that? Mamre, the Amorite, and the brother of Eskel and Aner, they're all allied with Abraham. He's got other villages, other leaders, other people who are loyal to him that if he says, hey, we got to go, they go. And so he does. He rallies the guys. I'm sure he rallies his allies and they go. When they hear the lot's been taken, he feels loyal and responsible probably. He goes. His allies join him and they ride in and they see the destruction, I'm sure. The horrific death of the tar pits and the people fleeing and the pillage. The village is probably decimated. All the stuff is just ransacked. And he sees it and he sees how big the four armies, kings that are united are. And he comes up with a great strategic plan. We've got to attack them by night, split our forces, surprise them. And he keeps surprising them and pushing them as far as Dan. And so he has a plan. And I thought I would expect Abram to just walk, walk in, make a statement. You can't touch me. Give me what I want. But he didn't. You know what Abram did? He used his brain. He used his intellect. He used his gifts. He used his talents. He used his abilities. He used the 318 men that God had allowed to be born into his household. He used his training. He used everything that God had given him to go be the blessing and go be the rescue and go make a difference when there was an injustice. And God never said, we don't read that God ever said, go do this. We don't know that it was claimed to be an act of faith. He did it knowing it was the right thing to do, using everything God had given him, his intellect and his brain to go and have a great plan. And there's a stereotype sometimes of where Christianity is like, you know, you got to uneducated, blind faith, like just believe it. You got to check your brain at the door. And I say, no, like if you, if you check your brain at the door and just blindly follow, I said, that's not smart. And that's not really following. You see, because the reason that I follow Jesus is because I, I study a little bit of like literary criticism. Going back to the first century, there's non-biblical literature that references Jesus as a real person. That he was here on the earth and he, and he died and he came back to life other than the Bible. There's historical accuracy, archaeological discoveries. You see, science is not in opposition of Jesus. If, if anything, I would say it is in favor of improving everything about the scriptures that we read. Our, all of our world and society date our calendars around this one guy for three years of what he did on this earth. It's crazy. The evidence is overwhelming. And so you're not just a Christian because the Bible says so. You need to be a Christian because you've studied this. You, you've, you've logically used your brain. You're not just blindly jumping in. And I would say I would, I would doubt anybody who's never doubted their faith. Like if you're just blindly jumping in and never really questioned it, I don't know if you've truly you know, discovered the truth of what following Christ is. And so use your brain. God tells us to worship him in mind and body and in spirit and in soul. So worship him in your mind. Seek me and you shall find. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like find me, seek me, search me, and I will reveal to you the truth. Use our brains. It's not about just checking your brain at the door, using your brain, being prepared, doing the work, worshiping God in heart, soul, and your mind using your God-given intelligence, your skills, your abilities to honor and serve God. See, because Abram could have just played the God card. I got his promise. You can't touch me. But he's doing the right thing with everything that God has given him and blessed him with up to this point, including his intellect, his strategy, his preparation. He's not sitting back in the lazy boy saying, 
If it's God's will, it's God's will. He's learning how to be faithful with a little. And so there's another journal entry for you. Faith is not a substitution for preparation. Faith is not a substitution for preparation. We should look around in our world and say, how can I be prepared for what's coming? How can I strategically set up my household and my finances and my life to be a blessing to take care of my people, to take care of my clan, to be a blessing to the world when I can respond in a way and and utilize everything that God has given me and not just sitting back with faith saying, well, God's got it. No, be prepared. Faith is not a substitution for being prepared in Abram is learning this and he's showing it and it's incredible to see what he was able to pull off. And I'm sure God's favor was on this mission. I'm sure he's God's man, but he wasn't commanded and it wasn't saying it was an act of faith. He did it in preparation to go be the blessing and save his relative. And so then seven verse 17 says this, Abram comes back after he rescued Lot, all the people, all the possessions, he's coming back. Verse 17, and after Abram returned from defeating King K. And the kings that are allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And I think Abram's probably going to struggle for the first time, something that he's never struggled with before, and what you and I probably struggle with maybe the most. And that's success. Success that you think you earned or that he got on his own. Now, my efforts, my work, my strategy, my, my plan, my men that I trained, my resources that I acquired. And he comes back probably puffed up, big chested out, thinking, look at what I just did. Look at who I am and look at what I've accomplished. And he's probably struggling with a little bit of pride and success and achievement. And, and I think our greatest strengths in life can sometimes be our greatest obstacles in following God. Because it's easy in our lows, right? It's easy when things aren't going well, when we're broken and hurting and everything's falling apart around us to cling to God, to seek out his word and his truth and what he's saying and, and, and ask him to intervene. It's so easy and natural for us to do that. But in the heights and the zenith, on the pinnacle, on the top, and that's when we're like, I was me. And we saw this in the Tower of Babel, making a name for themselves. It was all about them when things were going well. And I struggle with that too. Maybe I'm the only one. I doubt it. You probably do too. When things are going well, we, we, lack, we, we, we oftentimes neglect giving God the credit for his faithfulness and provision. But when things are going bad, we're quick to blame and say, God, where are you? And we cling to him when things aren't going well, but we neglect giving him credit for what he's provided in the highs. And I'm sure Abram is probably feeling this when he's coming back from this res- rescue mission. And I think he felt responsible for Lot and he went on his own will. It wasn't commanded by God. And I'm sure he's tempted in this moment. I'm assuming, we don't know, to be full of pride because he's a guy and I'm a guy. I don't know about ladies, but when, we're, when things are going well and, and I, I'm feeling myself, man, I'm, I'm, I'm big headed, I'm pompous, I'm arrogant and I'm full of pride. Look at me, what I have built. Look at the deals I've made. Look at the business I've created. Look at the influence that I have. Look at the house that I have bought and provided for my family. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And the king of Sodom is coming out to meet Abram, probably to thank him for what he's just done. And so if the king comes out to meet you, I'm speculating again, the people are probably all rallied. It's like the first parade, Super Bowl parade or the you know, World Series parade. Like he's coming back as a war hero. They're probably chanting his name like, thank you so much. And I'm sure it's just feeding his ego and his pride even more and more and more. It's a hero's parade. He comes back a military victor. And side note, he's one and oh. Period. He's never going to fight another military battle in his life, never recorded. So he goes out on top, one and oh. He retires after this. And I don't know about you, but if I was Abram, I'd be fooling myself. I'd be feeling myself. 
after coming back, defeating four kings and rescuing five villages, thinking it's my men, my plan, my alliances, my strategy. We took them down, wiped them out, got everything back. And he could keep it all for himself. And he might think that, you know what? This is mine now. Finders keepers. You a bunch of weepers, right? Like you lost it in the first place in the battle. I went and got it. It's rightfully mine. He could have probably done that. And look at how much more wealth and property and how, and thinking about the promise of God, like, hey, it's going to be massive. And this maybe is another stepping stone in my kingdom or my, uh, um, my uh, uh, nation being, my, my descendants, my nation, my household being massive. He could have thought that, full of pride. Look at what I just acquired. He's probably full of himself. In our highest moments, I'm sure like Abram, he probably wants to take credit for it. And so here's what I want to say in your journal is, pride will kill you if it goes unchecked. It'll kill you. It'll rob you of the intimacy and a true relationship with God because the scriptures say that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And it's only by grace through faith that we are saved. And so if we want his grace, we got to swallow our pride and realize this life is not about you. I think Abram is probably tempted and struggling with this life, this promise that I've given you is not about you. It's about me and what I want to do through you and the blessing that I want you to be to the world and all of humanity from this point forward. Pride will kill you if it goes unchecked. And it feels like you might be in this moment in this limbo. And then from out of nowhere, with no context, there's this other dude, I think rolls up in like a F-150 with the Super Bowl ring and just crashes the parade like, bro, who are you? It's King Mekeseljek. Ah, I can't say it. We'll just call him Big Mel, okay? Big Mel, Mel. And King Mekeseljek, King of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he met with them in, in this king's valley, in this parade moment, this celebration. He comes out, he's the king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine. And he says he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram. And he said this thing that blessed him. We'll get there in a minute. But pause here. Who is this guy? We don't really know where he came from, where he went. He's got two verses in all of scripture right here. He's mentioned. His name literally means the king of righteousness. Salem is the, will become the place of Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. He's the king of Jerusalem. His name literally means king of righteousness. And it also says he was a priest of the most high. Who is this guy? Right? And he brings out bread and wine to the celebration. Somebody else brought out bread and wine. Can't remember who it is. Just kidding. You know who it is. It's like this guy, and some, some theologians want to say this was Jesus incarnate before the birth in Bethlehem. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But I think it is a great picture. It is a foreshadowing. He is a character that is foreshadowing Christ. And he's the king of, king of peace. He's the king of righteousness, the king of Jerusalem. He's the priest of the most high God. And if you don't, priest, their role was not developed or instructed until about eight more generations through the lineage of Abraham. When he finally has a kid, Isaac, and Isaac has a, um, a kid, Jacob, and Jacob has 13 sons and take out Joseph. So there's the 12 sons of, of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of them is Levi, the Levite. And through Levi, the Levites are the priesthood. 
And then Aaron and everyone has to come through Levi's great-grandson Aaron, and they are the priest. So we got about eight generations before a priest terminology even shows up as a role that God kind of instituted in his old covenant. And so how's this guy got the title priest? He's also got the title king. And we can see in God's economy or God's structure of his kingdom, kings and priests should not be held by the same person. And you can look at human history and see where there's been crusades, where the political uh, or the rulers and the religious people have the same uh, seat and the same authority. Never goes well, really. And God's saying, not in my kingdom, not in my structure. The only guy who tried to do that was King Uzziah, one of the kings of Israel. You can go read about him. And he was a king and he went into the temple and said, I'm going to do what the priests do. And the priests were like, no, you can't do that. He was plagued with leprosy for the rest of his life. And he had to then be removed from all of his people for the remainder of his life. So this guy's got a priest title, the most high. He's got three different king titles. He's a foreshadowing, a perfect foreshadowing of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only person who can be a priest to the most high, the one who intercedes on our behalf. That's what a priest does. He intercedes between you and me and God. And that's Jesus. And he's also king. He's also ruler of our life and of the world. And so King Sodom and King Melchizedek, Mel, are out there meeting with him. He brings bread and wine. So basically what happens is Mel brings out communion to share with Abram. It's the first time we see this kind of institution, and, and we won't see it again until Jesus does it 3,500 years, roughly 3,500 years later, the Last Supper, where he breaks bread and, and wine and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, which is the new covenant. He's setting up a new covenant with people, Jesus is. And I think this is a picture of God affirming the covenant, the agreement that he is making with Abram, and let's break bread and have wine together in this moment before, 3,500 years before it's gonna happen with Jesus. It's incredible, absolutely incredible how all these pieces fit together so perfectly. I'm not sure exactly who this guy is, but the role that he plays, I think, is to affirm the call and the covenant that God made with Abraham by sharing in communion that Jesus will do the same thing with his disciples at the Last Supper. And I love that in Abram's most successful moment where pride is probably creeping in, his ego is high, greatest moment of success he's had up to this point, and he could easily take all the credit. It's interesting that it's kind of like Jesus shows up to him and says, it's not about you. Let me check your pride right now. And make sure you understand that you acquired all these possessions because God allowed you to. And just make sure you understand that that battle that you just won, God's provision was on it. So like, yeah, I didn't instruct you, but you know, I'm with you and I'm blessing you and I'm making you a great nation. It's my call, my command over your life. You're not doing this on your own. Just a reminder and a gut check to then fight pride with humility. And it's like Jesus and our Mechizedek is showing to remind Abram, it's not about you. And I don't know about you, but that's my story. And some of my most prideful ego, me, 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 selfish years of my life, thinking I'm building a name and a reputation for myself, my dreams, my wants, my goals. Jesus shows up in my life and humbles me, says, "Mine, it's not about you. And I think he might want to do the same for you today. Because there's a temptation of all of us to think when it's going good, it's all because I did it. And God wants to remind you, Jesus wants to remind you, humble yourself. I'll give you grace if you humble yourself. And you realize that everything that you have is a gift from me that you are to steward, shepherd, take care of, and leverage for the blessing of all of humanity. I love the gut check. Communion out in this valley with Mechizedek.
the foreshadowing of Christ, who is the priest, the, the one who intercedes on our behalf, who bought us back to be in relationship with God so we can be in perfect relationship with him one day. And so the blessing that Mekeseldek says over Abram is this, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise to be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See this? Abram is doing something that really hasn't been instituted or commanded yet. He's tithing. And so it's like, it's almost written on Abram's heart and he's finally figuring it out that this really isn't mine. You've allowed me to acquire this along the way and I've done it immorally. And this time I've done it maybe a little bit better and right. And I'm getting all this stuff. It's really not mine anyway. And he said, God, I'll give you 10%. He's like doing what's already written on his heart, which is right, a way to worship and a way to give back to the God most high who's been blessing him all alone. And I think the king of Sodom is here watching. Those are all my sheep. Those are all my possessions. And you're just giving 10% to this guy? We have no idea like why he's even here. I'm sure the king of Sodom's like, what is happening? What's going on? And the king of Sodom says to Abram in verse 21, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Obviously keep the goods because you think they're yours and you're doing whatever the heck you want with them. Just give me my people back. And Abram has another choice here of keeping everything that he rightfully rescued and could say it was his or give it back to the king of Sodom, to the people who probably don't deserve it because of their evil, wicked ways. But this is what he does. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high. I believe it's the first time he says God most high and Mekeseldek just said it. So I'm not sure when he made the oath. Did he make it in the moment? Like I'm making this oath right now. And he's using phrases that he was impressed upon from Mekeseldek saying that. Creator of heaven and earth. Again, what the blessing was just iterated from Mel over his life. He says, I have sworn an oath by the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have already eaten and share the belongings to the men who went with me to Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them have their share, the allies that went with him. They get, they get their share. But everything else, I'm giving back to you. I don't even want a strap of a sandal to take with me. Because I and Abram, he's figuring it out. And I love this. It's like the more time that he's spending with God, he's, we're watching the maturation process of him becoming a better God follower or a man after God's own heart or a man of righteousness. We see the development. He's like, I don't want any misconception. I don't want any mislabeling. I don't want anybody to look at my wealth, my prosperity, my great nation and say, you know, um, King, of the, King of Sodom, he was the one who kind of funded the Kickstarter. He was kind of the one that, you know, gave me that, you know, that million dollars or so to speak to get everything rolling. So then I had this great wealth and prosperity. Abram wants no misassociation of how he is being blessed. He's figuring it out. It's not mine. God, you're going to get all the glory. You're the one blessing me. You're the one providing everything. Let there be no mistake. Hebrew set apart. He's making a name for himself, a reputation. He's becoming a man of integrity, a man learning to do the right thing. And he's still not perfect. And so I think for you and I today, let there be no confusion where our blessings come from. Let there be no miscrediting where we get all the good things that we get to experience in this life. It comes from God, who's allowing us and blessing us and giving us every good 
Think, I think this was a hard thing for Abram to probably make the decision because think about it. In chapter 12, he pimps out his wife, says, hey, we're not, we're not married. Pretend you're my sister. Say you're my sister so I don't die. Preservation of my life. And because of that, things go really well for Abram. He comes out with tons of wealth and property and cattle and men. And he's like jump-starting his nation, right? Something immoral jump-started it and he held on to it. And I'm sure there was a, tons of consequences that he had to walk through. And this time he's like, I'm not doing it again. I'm not taking something that's not mine. God, I'm only receiving what you want to give me, giving you the credit. It's incredible to see the transformation that's happening in his life. And he's not perfect. He's going to blow it again, but he's learning. And the more time you and I spend with Jesus, the more time you and I spend in the word, the more time you and I spend connecting with God, our creator, the more and more we will begin to look like him, act like him, understand him, and live out the promise and the call that he has on your life. And so maybe you're a lot in this situation to where you have lived in, you're in it now and there's major consequences for it. Just know that there's a rescue for you. His name is Jesus. Abram's not a, Abram is kind of a figure of Christ as well, but Jesus is there to rescue you, to pull you back from wherever you've gone and whatever circumstances you found yourself in because of the decisions that you've made, you're never too far gone for you to rewrite your reputation and to become a man or woman of God, of righteousness. And so if you are in that place, stop it. Come back, repent. And then if maybe if you're Abram and you've got incredible success, incredible wealth, and let's be honest, all of us have success and wealth. We live in America. To some degree, we all are very comfortable and successful. And so I think we all have a temptation of pride and us, me, 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 me to creep in. That you would humble yourself before the God most high. Make a vow. It's all yours like Abram. It's all yours. And I want to be a good steward of it. And that you would bless me and I would continually honor you and make your name great. And it wouldn't be about me building a name for myself and pride would die today in your life. And you would fight tooth and nail to not let it creep in and to keep your eyes focused on him, on Christ, the one who bought you back for a price, who's interceding on your behalf, and that everything you have comes from him. And you would just be a steward. Humble yourself and fight the pride. Father, I thank you for this incredible story. God, I thank you that Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, is so applicable to our lives right now. And God, I pray that you would allow us to implement this in a way in which would honor you and glorify your name and, and we would be able to fight the temptation to make it all about us and we would humble ourselves and we would receive your grace and your blessing on our life and we could begin to live out the purpose and the call and the promise that you have for us. And God, help us to stay, flee from sin, run from it, remove it from our life, cut it off and flee from it. And God, we would keep our eyes fixed on you. And in return, you'd help us live the life that you're calling us to live. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.